Well, as uh, Dave and Charlotte just illustrated for us uh, in the lighting of our second candle today, our Advent theme for today is the theme of faith. Faith is, is a word that we're fairly familiar with in Christianity. Right? We call Christianity the faith sometimes. We just refer to it as the faith. In Scripture, we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Taking inspiration from Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the reformers of the 16th century worked hard and devoted their lives, and some even losing their lives, for the conviction that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We talked about this in Sunday school some this morning. In fact, interestingly, church history side note, on this day in 1520, Martin Luther burned the paper bull, the papal bull that was given to him by Pope Leo that condemned him if he did not recant his beliefs that we are saved and justified by faith alone. So there's your church history note for the day. But moving on, as David actually read from John chapter 20, Jesus asks Thomas, he says, have you believed? Have you had faith because you have seen me? Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, yet have seen, have had faith. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, the great London preacher of the, 19, uh, the, 18, the 1800s, the 19th century, once declared this about faith. He said, faith is believing that Christ is what he said to be, that he will do what he has promised to do, and then expecting him to do it. So then, building upon last week, Advent reminds us to encourage one another in our waiting to have faith in Christ. Faith that Christ has come in the flesh. Faith that Christ has died in the flesh. Faith that Christ has risen in the flesh. And faith as we wait and hope that Christ will indeed come again in the flesh. The reading from Mark's Gospel that Charlotte just read speaks to this faith. A long-held faith of the people of God who had heard from no prophet for generations. But then God began to speak again. First, through the silence of John the Baptist's father who had no faith when he heard the proclamation of John's birth. And then through John the baptizer himself coming out of the wilderness declaring the arrival or the advent of the coming Christ. In our prophecy from Isaiah 40 today, we have a direct reference to the ministry of John the Baptist. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, understood and applied this text of Isaiah to John in his ministry. He is the voice who cries from the wilderness. But interestingly, if you'll look there in your text, you'll notice there are actually four voices speaking in Isaiah 40. Now, the number four is not an arbitrary number when it comes to biblical numerology. On the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon and the stars, setting in place our ability to distinguish time. The Hebrew word for seasons, of which there are four, or at least there were created to be four. We've kind of been teetering back and forth between autumn and summer and winter the last couple of days. But the Hebrew word for seasons is the word moed. This word literally translated means appointed times or appointed seasons. If you double the number four, then we arrive at the number eight, which is the number of new creation, or 
new beginnings or the new birth. So then in this text of Isaiah 40, we have not only a prophecy of the arrival of the forerunner, but the arrival of Christ incarnate, the arrival of the new creation, the new birth that can only be found in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the first voice that we encounter in this text is actually the most important voice in this text. This voice helps us to properly understand the other three voices and how those three voices are working within the prophecy. And so this voice is none other than the voice of Yahweh himself. And so we read this in the first two verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. From the outset, the voice of Yahweh speaking here takes an affectionate tone towards his covenant people. And it sets that, in that covenant, that, that affectionate tone sets the direction for the entire chapter of, the, of, of Isaiah 40. And so he begins here in verse 1 with speaking this double repetition of comfort, stressing that this is to be a message of comfort to us as his people. Historically and contextually, this message of comfort comes on the heels of the promised Babylonian exile. So thinking of comfort in that way, it doesn't sound very comforting. So in chapter 39, if you were to look, I'm not going to read, but if you were to look in your Bible, chapter 39, my Bible has a heading, Envoys from Babylon. And as we've been studying through Isaiah this year, we know that this chapter is a, the third of three tests given to King Hezekiah. And here, he fails this test miserably. He proudly and vainly shows the envoys from Babylon all of the wealth of Israel. He's a little full of himself. And so Yahweh responds. And he says, because you've done this, all of this wealth will be carried off into Babylon. But I'll wait until you're dead. It will be your sons that will see it. So Hezekiah's like, that's okay then. He's fine. But it's at this moment that God then says, comfort. Comfort my people. You're going away into exile, but comfort my people. Yahweh's affectionate tone continues in that second verse by proclaiming to the three voices which are to follow that they are to speak tenderly this comfort. Or as the Septuagint notes actually here in verse 2, Speak to the heart of my people. Comfort, comfort, speak to their hearts this message. And so like the word karat that we saw last week in Isaiah 64.1, this word of speak tenderly is also a covenant word. It speaks of the love of Yahweh for his covenant people who has graciously forgiven them of all their sins. And this is to be a message of comfort that in the midst of hardship and exile and alienation, Yahweh... The God of the Exodus is not only the God who hears, but also the God who loves his people as a precious possession and graciously forgives them of their sins against him. To quote Spurgeon again, he states this, he says, Come boldly, believer, for despite the whisperings of Satan and the, even the doubting of your own heart, you are greatly loved by God. And we see this love in the proclamations that the three voices are to deliver tenderly to the covenant people of Yahweh. And each of these messages actually begin here in verse 2, signified by this little word, that. These three clauses beginning with that. And so beginning with the second voice, 
Yahweh proclaims, starting here in verse 2, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them that her warfare is ended. Again, the Septuagint is really interesting here. It reads, speak tenderly to her heart. Speak to the heart of my people that her humiliation has ended. Meaning, speak comfort to my people that her humiliation and exile has come to an end. But historically, both for Isaiah and for us as the church, we are still in the midst of exile. War still continues. For Isaiah and the people of Israel, they have just been promised 70 years of exile in Babylon. The exile hasn't even started yet. And God is saying, your humiliation is over. So what could this mean? Right? Because this doesn't make sense. It's not like you know we randomly time-traveled forward and then back, and God is like, don't worry, this is going to happen. The meaning of this comfort, this tender message, is to be found in the word warfare, or the word humiliation there in that clause. The Hebrew word used here, like most Hebrew words and Greek words, this Hebrew word used here has not only multiple meanings, but multiple directions in meaning. So let me explain. When speaking about humanity, for instance, the word for warfare here is typically used to describe a person's service. Right? Whether that be in the military or in the service of Yahweh. In Numbers chapter 4, we read this starting in verse 21. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their father's houses and by their clans, from 30 years old up to 50 years old. And you shall list them, all who can come to duty, to do service in the tent of meeting. This is the same word. But when the word warfare changes direction, and is focused not on humanity but on Yahweh, it changes from a verb to a noun. And it becomes a title. And that title is Yahweh of hosts, or Yahweh of armies. So meaning then, as we come to this first clause, this speak tenderly that her warfare is ended, that God is announcing to his people the end of their warfare, not between one another as nations, but rather their warfare between him and them, their alienation, their humiliation between us and God. And while spiritual warfare between us and the powers and principalities and spiritual warfare even between us and our own flesh continues, our warfare with God has ended because of the accomplished work of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith rests on that promise of peace. And so how do we know that our warfare has ended, right? We read this and, okay, well, that's fine. That all makes sense. I can, I can get on board with that, but how, right? The word, that, that little question gets annoying sometimes. How does this work? It works because of the message and the ministry of the voice of the forerunner, the second voice in this passage. And so we read this. Speak tenderly that her warfare is ended. A voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Again, Charlotte read for us this morning in the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The result of God's arrival will be the revelation of his glory visible to all. The voice of the forerunner proclaims that all flesh will see with their physical eyes the majestic glory of Yahweh. And this has all taken place because, as the forerunner proclaims here in verse 5, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it to be so. And he has spoken by sending his word incarnate. John writes in 1.14, And the word, who was God and is God and was with God in the beginning, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because all flesh will witness the glory of Yahweh, the forerunner's proclamation is not just one for a theophany, for a manifestation of God, but more particularly a Christophany, a manifestation of Christ incarnate. When Christ became flesh and dwelt among mankind, he came to lead his people the way out of their warfare between them and Yahweh and to free them from their slavery to sin through the final exodus. And we can see this in the command that is given to the third voice. And so we read the second that. And we see comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly, speak to their heart, that her iniquity is pardoned. And so how do we know our iniquity has been pardoned? Because of the message of the third voice, that her iniquity is pardoned. And so a voice says, cry. And I said, Isaiah says, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath, when the spirit, when the ruach of, our, of Yahweh blows on it. And surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This third voice is none other than, vo than the voice of Christ Jesus himself. And so, I, I, as I was working through this this week, I thought, you know, this makes sense, but how? How does this make sense? Well, it makes sense because not only has the glory of Yahweh been fully manifested in the incarnation of Christ, but these words of these, of these verses are the direct words of Christ. He says this in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to our anxieties. He said, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and is gone tomorrow and thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Why are you anxious about things that fade and are thrown into the oven? God will care for you. But furthermore, in Christ, our iniquity is fully pardoned. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says... Paul writes, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 
In Christ, we are shown the way out. In Christ, we have the end of our warfare with Yahweh. When the glory of Yahweh is revealed in Christ, humanity's hope and faith in itself withers and fades away like grass because the breath, the spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. And it is Christ who breathes the spirit of God on us. In John 20, 22, we read this. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, our hope, our hope and our faith in ourselves withers and fades because we are like grass. But Christ, the word of Yahweh, made flesh who will not wither, but will stand forever. He tells us in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God pardons our iniquities because he is the one who redeems us through the work of Christ. And this is an act of divine grace that should bring comfort to us all. Cyril of Alexandria, writing in the 4th century, writes this. He says, The word of the Father dwells in our hearts through faith. And when we receive the riches of his divine spirit, then we have in ourselves that which is most worth having. For when the word dwells in us, he remains there forever, sustaining us and enlivening us. In Christ, our iniquity has been pardoned. And while all flesh is like grass, which withers and fades away, our eternal hope lies in the permanence of God and his word and his spirit. But finally, we have one more voice in this passage to consider. And that is the first, fourth voice. Excuse me. Fourth and third, for some reason in my mouth, didn't want to cooperate. Fourth voice. The fourth voice is commanded here. And Yahweh says, comfort, comfort, speak tenderly to my people. That she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? This final that in verse 2 has to be read in the context of the other two. Otherwise, we will misinterpret it. It helps us to keep it in its context. Taking this clause out of context, double for her sins, if we were to rip it out of its context and just read it alone, this can easily lead us to believe that God pours out upon his precious redeemed people a double punishment for their sins. Taking this clause out of context pictures God as vindictive and prone to require from us a severe punishment even when we have placed our eternal hope in him. This is a wrong interpretation. It is both contrary to God's nature and contrary to God's promise of redeeming us. Taking this clause out of context leads us to question God's mercy, God's grace, God's compassion, and God's justice. So we might ask ourselves, if we read this verse out of context, why would he redeem us? Why would he end our warfare? Why would he pardon our iniquities only to then doubly punish us for the sins that he supposedly just pardoned? This would not be comfort, comfort, or a tender message. This would be discomfort and anxiety and stress and fear. Instead, because this is a tender message from Yahweh, God's repetition of comfort, comfort in verse 1 is the interpretive key that we are to use to understand double for her sins. 
So reading this clause of verse 2 in light of the previous two, double for her sins does not suggest a double punishment, but a double reward when our warfare with Yahweh is over. Our iniquities have been pardoned by God fully and completely. The grace and mercy that Yahweh has bestowed upon us is not just a measly single portion of grace, but a double portion of grace. John proclaims at the end of his lofty prologue in his gospel that in Christ's fullness we have all received not just grace, but grace upon grace. We have received a double portion of grace in Christ Jesus. This is great comfort, comfort from Yahweh. And so, like the other two, how do we know that we have received from God's hand a double reward or a double portion for our sins? We know it because of the proclamation and ministry, the gospel ministry delivered through the fourth voice, the voice of the bride of Christ, the voice of the church. So listen to the voice of the church. And God says, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold The Lord God comes with his might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead those who are with young. In the voice of the church, we have the declaration of complete comfort and redemption found only in Christ alone. The good news of Isaiah is the good news proclaimed by the church, delivered to us by Christ and the apostles. And to quote Jude 3, it is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so now, as we read here in verse 9, the church takes on a similar role to John the Baptist. Not that we are forerunners of the incarnation, but we are the heralds of the death and the resurrection of the incarnate Christ. And we are the heralds of the return of the incarnate Christ. Yahweh tells this voice, he says, Get you up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Zion is a direct reference to the people of God. And we are commissioned to share that message, not merely to the cities of Judah, but to the whole world. Christ tells us in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. Yahweh commands this message to be declared from the high places. Like last week we saw in Isaiah 64, high places are where man meets with God. These are the same high places that we also saw last week in Isaiah 64 that will tremble at his presence when he comes down upon them. And the high mountain is chosen so that all may hear and see the message when it is proclaimed. And this message, as we see here in verse 9, is to be lifted up, and lifted up not in fear. And so notice through the rest of this passage, This message, he gives us the message that we are to proclaim without fear. First, he says, we are to declare when we go up to the high places, behold your God. This is exactly what Advent is preparing us to celebrate. As we celebrate the first Advent of Christ while anticipating his second, we make our way to the high places. We point to Christ and we declare to the world, behold your God. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, look upon him who has been lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Look upon him, and all who look upon him and believe in him will have eternal life. Second, 
in verse 10, we read that this is what we're supposed to proclaim. Behold, the Lord God comes with his might, with his arm, and his arm rules for him. His salvation rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. This is not only the message we are to proclaim, but this is also connected to the second advent of Christ. When he returns in power and glory and might, he returns with his recompense and his repayment. John records in Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each person for what he or she has done. Third and finally, the church is to proclaim that Christ will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs to his arms and carry them in his bosom and lead, gently lead those who are with young. In John 10.14, Jesus tenderly speaks comfort to us and tells us that he is our good shepherd. In Matthew 23.37, when he's lamenting the state of Jerusalem, Jesus says that he would be like a mother hen who gathers her chicks beneath her wings. Christ will gather the lambs of his flock tenderly into his arms and speak comfort, comfort to us. This is the comforting good news of Advent, that we as the church, the fourth voice, have been commissioned to proclaim. Behold your God of new seasons, the God of the new creation, of the new birth, and of new beginnings. And so this Advent, have faith and believe that Christ is who he says he is. Have faith that he will do what he promised to do. And heed the four voices of Isaiah 40. God, the forerunner, the Christ, and the church. Take a double comfort from these words. In the coming of Christ, our warfare has ended. Our iniquities have been pardoned. And our sins have been doubly forgiven. As Spurgeon stated, despite the whisperings of the enemy and despite the doubting of your own heart, you are greatly loved by God. And so as we wait in Advent, hope in Christ, have faith in him and his accomplished work and in his return. Amen.